Hello and welcome to Keanu Club. Like a cool breeze over the mountains, this is episode 34, Johnny Mnemonic from 1995. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Jimmy Lewandowski, back with us today, not on the podcast since Keanu's very early TV days. We have Mike Flynn. Hello, Mike. How's it going, guys? Good. Before we get into the movie, there's a lot to talk about. I want to read the opening crawl. Good, because I wish it was read out loud in the movie. (laughs) It would make it so much better. Like, as soon as it came up, I just wrote down, oh boy, a crawl. Then I started typing. I'm like, wait, somebody's got to have typed this already online. And they did. But whoever wrote it online at the very end, that man is Johnny Mnemonic. This is his story. And I'm like, that's so much better than what's here. Because they just don't include that here. Anyway, okay. So here is the opening crawl. They probably offered it to Marlon Brando to read it, but he charged $3 million, I'm sure. probably... (laughs) tried to do something like that, and it failed. Before we read the crawl, this movie is set in the distant future of 2021 in the free city of Newark, which I'm imagining is probably under President Trump. He was just re-elected for his second term. So here is the crawl of our distant future five years from now. Second decade of the 21st century. Corporations rule. The world is threatened by a new plague, NAS, nerve attenuation syndrome. Fatal, epidemic, its cause and cure unknown. The corporations are opposed by the Lotechs, a resistance movement risen from the streets. Hackers, data pirates, guerrilla fighters in the info wars. The corporations defend themselves. They hire the Yakuza, the most powerful of all crime syndicates. They sheathe their data in black ice, lethal viruses waiting to burn the brains of intruders. But the Lotechs wait in their strongholds, in the old city cores, like rats in the walls of the world. The most valuable information must sometimes be entrusted to mnemonic couriers, elite agents who smuggle data in wet-wired brain implants. One of these men is Johnny Mnemonic. This is his story. So this movie, you know, it's based on the William Gibson short story, and it's also borrows heavily from one of his later novels, but at least he got right that corporations do rule. I mean, like the most powerful entities on the planet today, in the near future of 2016, are corporations. I mean, that's at least right. We're just not thrown into chaos. 50% of our world is not addicted to some, you know, crippling drug, and it's far off, but also kind of close, which I guess is sort of all you can ask for for a science fiction movie. There is an addiction actually going on right now. It's called Pokemon Go. I mean, I don't think you're that far off. This movie definitely elaborates on technophobia. And yeah, part of just Gibson's cyberpunk reality is going to be corporations rule the world and the average citizen is a nobody that gets trampled on. And it's going to be their day someday, but it's going to be a long, dark road before anyone gets there. And Gibson was kind of the father of the whole cyberspace movement in sci-fi lit. And even, I was watching the theatrical trailer on the Blu-ray, and it says, from William Gibson, author of New Romancer, which hadn't even been made into a movie. So it was a very famous book, so if you're a moviegoer and you see this trailer before whatever action extravaganza came out in early 95, say you went to see like something like Die Hard with a Vengeance, you see this trailer and Joe Blow sees it and is like, who? 
all he remembers is double cheese anchovies? No, it's true. Uh, Gibson didn't quite have the clout that, say, Philip K. Dick does when his movies get adapted, or even Stephen King, for that matter. But I guess Nora Manser was just such, like, a, I guess, a cultural touchstone in sci-fi literature and just literature in general. And a lot of that is sort of squeezed in a bit into this movie as well and stuff. So it is kind of interesting that they would market this off of his name and not Keanu's. Right. And they've been they have been trying to make that movie for years. They're still trying to make it on and off. But it's interesting that Mnemonic came out in 95. This was I took a note here. It was peak VR. We have all this stuff like Oculus Rift, and we just got the add-on for the PlayStation. Yeah, literally tomorrow, as we're recording this, the PlayStation VR comes out. And so it's really the perfect time to watch this movie. And Johnny Mnemonic was produced by TriStar Pictures, a Sony Pictures Entertainment company. Well, there you go. Uh, And the same year PlayStation came out. But there were all these movies that were commenting about the internet at the time. Disclosure had come out the year before. And that was a thriller about Michael Douglas being sexually harassed, and there was intrigue involving email and CD-ROMs. And in 95, you had a lot of movies. You had Hackers, you had The Net, you had Virtuosity. Lawnmower Man. You had some really terrible X-Files episodes, like Too Shy. You had my personal favorite of this whole trend, Strange Days, directed by Catherine Bigelow. And you had this. So this was a time where cyberpunk was really big, and apparently the original intention for this movie was to make it like a million and a half dollar, real low-budget indie kind of movie, and then Sony was just like, hey, here's some money, because cyberpunk is really big right now, and so they made it into like this $30 million budget or so, and then they, what I read was that they advertised this with online marketing, and like even William Gibson was doing chats and stuff online, real sort of early internet things, but this is like early kind of, not viral marketing, but online marketing in a way that, because they were like, our target demographic are these nerds on computers, let's take to the internet with this new sort of sub-branch of our film studio and actually promote to them, so it's a weird time in society. It is, and it's weird that you mentioned the the whole online marketing gimmick. Sony was privy to that early on. In 93, they advertised Last Action Hero in space. They actually had a banner that said Schwarzenegger, Last Action Hero, on a module in space. (laughs) Didn't exactly get the point across. No. That aside, you mentioned that it was going to be this sort of micro-budget art film. The director of this, Robert Longo, he's a known photographer. He directed a few music videos, too, such as Bizarre Love Triangle by New Order and The One I Love by R.E.M., which was a big moment in alternative crossing over to the MTV set. So this was his big feature debut, and he was going after artsy sci-fi films as inspirations like La Jetée is a film that he used as inspiration. And La Jetée, of course, is all photographs, and you can barely see an influence on that film in Johnny Mnemonic. This movie's all over the place. It's weird in that four years from now, Keanu is going to be in the good version of this, which is The Matrix, but this movie is so visually unique and interesting and weird that it's almost impossible to look away like I would look down to like write a note or something and I would look up but the screen would be completely different I had no idea what I'm looking at I have to rewind 
I had to rewind more in this movie than probably all the other Keanu Club movies so far, just because everything that they throw on screen is in scene. You're like, oh, there's just Dolph Lundgren playing Street Preacher, or there's Henry Rollins playing a doctor named Spider, or there's a dolphin in heaven named Jones. All these things are just like, what is going on? How many drugs was William Gibson on? Was he addicted to whatever the drug is that that, that Keanu is carrying the cure to in his brain? I don't know what happens in this movie i don't think it's a good movie but it's a movie that everybody should watch because it's it's not a train wreck it's just it's a beautiful weird vision to me it kind of felt almost like a dream in a way aesthetically it reminded me obviously blade runner came to mind but also terry gilliam's brazil in a lot of ways it's like blade runner if tony scott directed it Well, that's another thing. I almost feel like Rennie Harlan should have directed this or something like that. We needed someone who wanted to also send a message and not just make something that looks awesome scene by scene and doesn't quite patch together the way I feel it should. There's a great movie in here. I love the world that we're in. Just the randomness of everything, just the idea that everything is appropriated for something over and over, this super recycled world, and then this gleaming sort of corporate world. The contrast of those environments are really cool. But yeah, I don't also know if it's a good movie. Uh, We should maybe mention quickly the Japanese cut, right? Like there's two versions of this out there. So So what I read about that is that the Japanese cut is nine minutes longer. None of us watched it for this. Producers re-edited the cut that was put together to make it more mainstream. But William Gibson said that they completely messed up his story. And he said the Japanese cut is much closer to his vision for what the film should be than what we watched. And so the movie's not long. The movie's like an hour 38. So an extra nine minutes is kind of a big deal. That's another 10% of this movie. Yeah, it's like a that if you, Yeah, if you, if you add that much to this, I mean, you could tell a completely different story. It is true. One of the things they added, the majority of what they added, I believe, were scenes involving Takashi Kitano. A lot of his scenes were kept in the Japanese version for Japanese audiences. The other thing is Keanu Reeves, as you probably know, is massive in Asia. Yeah. He has a new movie that came out this year called The Whole Truth, which I think everything I've seen is only like in Chinese for that. So, But at this point in his career? He must be, though, because I mean, he just did Little Buddha. That's got to do something for him over there. I don't know if the Chinese were that excited about, you know, free Tibet and everything, <laughs> but maybe the Japanese. wasn't excited about Little Buddha? <laughs> I remember being on the set of John Wick, and there was a flock Boiler alert tourists. for the John Wick episode. There was a flock of tourists that you would not believe trying to get to the man. It was like the Beatles in 1964. Well, do you know when he became big in Asia? Because I think that's a good point that Mike's making. Is he big there already in 1995? Or is this part of... Maybe this was the start of it, that they have this Japanese icon, and everybody goes to see this movie, and they're like, oh, who's this star? And then a couple years later, or, you know, they have speed that they can see, and then they can see The Matrix in a couple years, and maybe this is a gateway into Keanu fandom for for all of Asia. That is a theory to go with, especially since the international cut was geared towards Japanese audiences, as far as I know. There's a lot of Japanese actors. I mean, you know, Yakuza, but I mean, at least they're not played by Americans or anything like that, or, you know. This isn't Ghost in the Shell. (laughs) To be determined. (laughs) Takashi is involved in. Which this reminded me heavily of, too, at times. I mean, well, at least it made me want to go watch that. And I think one of the things about maybe why this was such a 
big hit out there or why it's more geared towards that side of the world is it's got quite an anime feel about it too you know like the neon world and just the sort of subject matter and the high-tech futuristic everything about it just kind of feels like tokyo city and all that kind of neo futuristic aesthetic i gotta agree with you on the element that it doesn't make a lot of sense this movie sense feel very surreal they have no time for exposition they have zero time to explain a single thing to you yeah that's why the opening crawls there yeah yeah (laughs) they give you an opening crawl and that's it and then all of a sudden they're talking about how he's got a hard drive in his head and the capacity keeps going up and he's got 80 gigs at, at first which in 1995 is fucking enormous. Today it would be more like 8 terabytes would be a reasonable amount for him to be carrying in his head. And he's getting sick because he's got too much storage space. Okay, we're explaining this. And it becomes a lot of why. The director, Mike Nichols, once asked a performer who was going on too long with the monologue, why are you telling me this? There's a lot of this. Like, why is Ice-T dressed like that? Why is Henry Rollins dressed in his normal tight black shirt and jeans, and he's just wearing a lab coat and glasses to make him look smart? With the black flag tattoo visible on the back of his neck? Yes, the black flag tattoo's right there. He's Henry Rollins. At least that looks like a barcode. I mean, it's the the misfits (laughs) tattoo. It's like his misfits tattoos on his forearms. And he has three purposes in that movie. Don't touch his equipment. Yep. Let him do his job. Yep. And say fuck a lot. Yeah. Which everybody else does say fuck a lot, but Henry Rollins especially likes to do it in the movie. Bring up an interesting point is that, like, not a lot really is going on here, right? Like, he gets data in his head, and instantly he's like, I need it out of my head. Instantly. And so the rest of the movie, he's (laughs) going to be doing that. And I think the problem is he goes to too many people. Like, I just feel like if he had just gotten to Ice T and stuck with him the whole movie, it would have been cool. But then we got to cut off and meet the cyborg bodyguard girl and Udo Kier, the crazy the nightclub. bodyguard in, and then, the, in the history of cinema. Yeah, and then laser finger bodyguard with the laser whip oh, he's the best. thing. He's great. Laser finger's awesome. I just feel like we're jumping around way too much. The movie's called Johnny Mnemonic. I really thought we were going <laughs> to stick by his side this whole movie, you know, but we so, don't. He, here is here is the plot. And this was a movie that I had to read Wikipedia for because I was like, I don't know what's going on. So as we learn in the opening crawl, there's mnemonics that carry data from one to the other because it's not safe to send that stuff over the net. Just sort of like in Snowden, Cage Club Alert, where you know if you're afraid that people are watching you, that if you don't want to do things on your computer, you might send something, a hard copy or snail mail or whatever. So they pay... Keanu a lot of money and he's trying to get money so that he can get this mnemonic device out of his brain because he wants to be a normal person but then his memories are fading his memories are fading and so he's got 80 gigs in his head he uses some kind of like plug-in to double it to 160 yeah a doubler a doubler yes the doubler and then they activate the doubler and then they need him to transport 320 gigs and he's like it's gonna be fine it's gonna be fine but if you put too much in your brain, then it starts erasing other things. And if you don't get it out quickly enough, your brain can just sort of like overheat and you can die. And so he goes from Beijing to the free city of Newark, and he has to go bring it to Udo Kier, hey, I wait, think. excuse me. Excuse me. I just want to inter- interrupt. That's not Beijing or Newark. It's actually 
Toronto and Montreal. Well, yeah, it's all filmed. Yeah, it's all filmed there. But this, the movie takes place at least in Beijing and the free city of Newark. Yes, I gotta give props to any sci-fi movie that's set in New Jersey. I think Buckaroo Banzai is the only other movie that actually goes there. Well, Frankenhooker too. But that's not really. It's sort of sci-fi. And War of the Worlds. Well, there you go. So four. That's that's a Mount Rushmore of New Jersey sci-fi. There you go. So he goes to New York, and he goes to Udo Kier, and then like sort of gets double-crossed or something. I'm not exactly sure what happens. Yeah, he does get double-crossed. And then that's when he that's when Jane shows up. It's like hilarious though. Like they make it so confusing. It's that cowboy that looks like Carl Winslow that double-crosses him. I don't understand, because he's in the right place, right? But he's just getting screwed? Like, are they just not going to pay him? They just didn't want to pay him, exactly. It was, it was sort of this device that they had to make the movie longer, and then Ice-T shows up, and his, Ice-T's first line is, I'm J-Bone. I run heaven. Who are you? I'm J-Bone. I run heaven. Low tech headquarters. Yeah, and he does. And heaven, heaven's just a building where the low techs, which are the you know the uprising, the, the the resurgence, the insurgents, the whatever, the rebels, the rebellion. That's where they hang out. That's their main base. That's where Jones the Dolphin is. That's where it's a yeah. bridge, right? I think it's a bridge. Oh, nothing about this makes sense. And then the rest of the movie sort of becomes a chase where Keanu's just trying to get this out of his brain. Like, it's a race against the clock, but there's no actual clock. Like, it's not like speed where we know that it can't go below 55. It's just like he's kind of losing his mind a little bit. And we yeah. don't have we don't have a sense of like, okay, like it's not like crank, right? Where it's like, okay, I need to, there's like literally like a clock on screen or something where like I need to get this done by this point, otherwise I die. It's just like, I need to get this out as soon as I can, otherwise things are going to be bad for me. Well, Crank is an excellent example of that because he actually has stakes. If he does not keep his adrenaline up, he's going to die. In the second one, if he doesn't keep the electricity in his body, he's going to die. In Johnny Mnemonic, he may die. There's no rule. He's just running. I do want to point something out. The beginning, when he first meets with the Yakuza that end up setting him up, and he's on the run, and he's on his next Skype call with Udo Kier. I posted this on my Instagram the other night. One of my favorite things, a buddy of mine and I have this joke where he's got the visor on. And by the way, the visor budget must have been $3 million. There's a lot of high-tech visors in this movie. <laughs> like, it should have gotten a special Oscar for visor tech. After they start doing the extraction, he gets sick, and he's like, where's the bathroom? And the guy's like, quizzically like, what? He's like, the toilet. Mr. Smith? Where's the bathroom? What? The toilet. It's one of my favorite Keanu Reeves deliveries ever, and it's not even the peak one, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Can we talk about Dolph Lundgren in this movie? Yeah, so now, do you know who was originally supposed to play the Street Preacher part, or was it originally considered for it? Who? No. Bono. I did read about this. So he was supposed to be like the supervisor of the soundtrack and was in discussion to the street preacher and then wound up doing neither of them. Was this around the time of like Zootopia and Lemon and they were going all techno? Zuropa. (laughs) Zuropa. It was Zuropa. Did I say Zootopia? Same difference. (laughs) It was Zuropa, Zuropa, and then it was Pop was their next album. Are you guys talking to you two to me? 
You know we you are. Know we are. So I just want to hold on. Hold on. Wait. 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 Important. Important side note. Another podcast on our network now and again trashed the Scott Aukerman, Adam Scott, You Talk and You Too to Me podcast. We're going to have a podcast battle now because Keanu Club is firmly on the pro You Talk and You Too to Me side. So that's a, like gloves are off. Done. That's that's the end of my I second that diatribe. So. Go on, Mike. What, what what were you going to say that has more to do with this movie than what I just said? So, it has less to do with why Dolph Lundgren's character is in this movie. Basically, he's in a rundown church. Yep. He's dressed like a hobo. He's street preacher. And then he's dressed like Tarzan in the climax. And Takashi Kitano calls him, and he needs Johnny Mnemonic dead. And he's like, we hold service every night. <laughs> and he keeps saying, he keeps saying Jesus. He said, you could play a drinking game and die for every time this guy says Jesus. Come to Jesus. You need someone brought to Jesus? Who is this lost soul? A sinner repentant? But he's street preacher. Like, that's his gimmick. <laughs> like, his whole thing is he's an assassin and he's adopted religious iconography to be his thing to, like, scare the shit out of people. He's, <laughs> but, he's, an, he's an assassin that's like an extreme mid-90s WWF gimmick. Whoa, street preacher's out. J-Bone, you copying? That son of a bitch doesn't have one natural bone left in his body. You really a preacher, J-Bone? Preacher? That motherfucker got God and technology ass backwards. He'll kill anybody for money just to keep his body full of implants. Want me to follow him? Nah, stay away from him. He's too crazy. He just runs around. He beats people up. He kills people like he's the goddamn Undertaker. Undertaker was huge. At this time. So is Dolph Lundgren. So is Dolph Lundgren. He was huge. He was huge at Blockbuster. Well, I mean, he's got the presence of a jacked up sort of cyborg psychopath. You know, like I didn't question that part one bit. And I was like, Ivan Drago, I'm intimidated. You know, Rocky IV is great. That's kind of all I know him from. Maybe I come in peace and the Punisher. I come in peace. The Punisher. Universal Soldier. Come on, man. And I just saw him in real life at Fantastic Fest promoting his new movie, Don't Kill It, which I'm sure will be on Netflix in like eight months. So, the- Oh, I'm sure. You should also check out Skin Trade, where him and Michael J. White... Oh, that just sounds like a terrible name for a movie. And Ron Perlman, and Tony Jaa, and Peter Weller, all-star cast, are up against a human trafficking ring in, in Thailand. But it starts out in Jersey City, and Dolph Lundgren plays a cop in Jersey City... But anyway, his purpose is just killing people. He doesn't have any kind, again, no exposition. All he does is he's obsessed with Jesus and kills people. He shows up, he screams a lot, he does that Dolph Lundgren voice where he's really deep. Again, the movie makes no sense. It's very entertaining. I really like it. I own the Blu-ray. I've owned the Blu-ray for a couple of years now. I've seen it. But it's completely over my head. And there, there's not a lot of like philosophy. No, I don't. I don't. I want to disagree. I don't think it's over your head because I don't think there's enough here. There's there's no story. There's no plot. There's not really deeper meaning to anything. Any kind of parallels you draw to modern day are things that you're applying to the movie. Like I don't think this adaptation, at least, I haven't read the short story. I don't think this adaptation really has anything to say. It's just entertainment for entertainment's sake. I mean, we had 
speed. We have the Matrix coming up. Both of those have more to talk about. We had Point Break. I mean, even like Point Break and Speed, you know, on a bigger picture, aren't necessarily the deepest of action movies. The Matrix, we're going to have, I'm guessing, if we talk about every couple episodes, how this can be like a four-hour podcast. But this, there's just nothing here. I mean, for other movies, you can say like, oh, this means this or whatever. And like this, it's like empty. Like it wants to say things, but I don't think it's going over your head, Mike. I I disagree. I don't think... I don't want you to sort of, like, give yourself, like, a lack of credit there. I just think there's nothing here to sort of get. Yeah, I guess I guess what you have the point is it's eye candy. It's a popcorn movie, albeit it's a popcorn movie with an art house movie underneath it. It's worth noting that they opened this Memorial Day weekend oh, God. in five. It opened against Casper and Braveheart. Of all things. Casper was like my favorite movie of my childhood. I don't know if we ever said this on here on any of these podcasts, but Casper was a movie that we rented from the video store more times than it would have cost to buy the VHS. I love Casper so, so much. So I'm, I don't know if I saw Casper in theaters, but I definitely didn't see Johnny Mnemonic or Braveheart in theaters. I saw Casper in the theater. And this was an odd weekend to release it due to the fact that, number one, it had formidable competition with a star-driven vehicle and a pre-existing property like Casper, which was coming out through Universal, who had also done the Flintstones, which had come out the Memorial Day before, and it was a huge hit. But anyway, it was also Keanu Reeves' follow-up to Speed. So audiences went on the pretense that they were going to get Keanu Reeves' action hero. Yeah, and I think, you know, this movie wants to be an art house, but I feel like the studio had to squeeze a lot more action in here than is necessary, which makes it kind of uneven as well. And there's definitely character issues, you know. I feel like we're just dropped into this world and have to figure out who everybody is in this minimal amount of time. Like, we really don't learn anything about Johnny. We don't learn anything about anybody's background. The most we learn about is the Yakuza guy who lost his daughter. You know, and there's even more of that in the extended cut, which would flesh him out more. But we don't really learn about these characters. They don't really tell us anything about them either. Everything feels very surface level, and that's why it's confusing at times and and hard to connect. Um, I do just enjoy it sort of on the eye candy level, like you said, Mike. Like, it's, it's, um, it's pop art, basically, and I love, I love it for that. Pop art is a great term to use for it. There's a lot of movies that I will call pop art. Like, Batman 89 is a classic example of pop art. But that had more substance than Johnny Mnemonic does, because Tim Burton was not trying to make an art house movie. Robert Longo was trying to make that compromise, that gray area, and it succeeds on a watchable level but it doesn't succeed as a film completely that said i love i kind of love johnny mnemonic yeah it just makes you wish that verhoven was behind the wheel because you know like he could do like a subtle sly and snarky sort of comment on the times that we live in through material like this you know oh my god and johnny uh, johnny mnemonic under verhoven would have been amazing and i'm a huge verhoven acolyte i think that RoboCop is probably the best sci-fi movie ever made. His new movie, L is great. I hate you for seeing it, because I'm dying to see it, and the idea of him getting an Oscar nomination finally is driving me nuts. I don't think it's... If he does, it's going to be crazy, because that movie is insane. 
Um, what I wanted to say quickly, briefly, was that it's interesting that you bring up Tim Burton's Batman. You mentioned Christopher Lambert before, because both Christopher Lambert and Val Kilmer were originally considered for the role of Johnny Mnemonic, and Val Kilmer apparently had like signed on to do it, and then was offered Batman and Batman Forever, and so he's like, "All right, well, bye," and he just left this to go do that. So it's weird that you know you've only you've probably named about ten different actors or sort of you know a couple different movies or whatever, but you named the two other main directions that this movie could have gone in yes it's it's interesting i don't with lambert it would have been something that came out in february or march and i think that it would have gotten a bigger cult following if they had done it then and regarding val kilmer i think he would have been a little less histrionic but in a weird twist of fate Michael Mann was pursuing Keanu Reeves for the role of Chris in Heat, the younger apprentice of Robert De Niro. Keanu wants to do Hamlet in Canada, and Mann gives the role to Val Kilmer. And this was done after Batman Forever was filmed, so it wasn't like a scheduling conflict or anything. Because Mnemonic was filmed in the early part of 94, and it was released a year later. And of course, turnaround time from post-production to release was a lot sooner in the 90s than it is now because of visual effects and pre-booking release dates and all that crap. So it sat on the shelf a little bit, I think, because of the fact that they were trying to fine-tune the blockbuster elements into the film. Yeah, and they had to do those two cuts as well. And fine-tune they did not. <laughs> no, they didn't. Oh, just uh, you mentioned visual effects, and I think this may be there in the early sort of groundbreaking realm of visual effects. We get a lot of that Johnny going online and the internet VR style, right? And flying through it and all that. I don't know. It's kind of funny, but it also, there's something very charming about it. And I think that they predicted what we're going to be seeing soon with this PlayStation VR and the Oculus Rift, where we can have like a customizable VR operating system to surf the net. And I don't know. I just thought it was a really great concept to see when he's going through the online phone book. You see the globe and he zones in on Hong Kong or China or wherever, and he zooms in with his arms and he's cracking the hotel code and everything reminded me of the lawnmower man for sega genesis yeah or the movie if you've ever seen that that first one i do remember an old neighbor having a panasonic 3do and that's what those virtual reality scenes reminded me of but 95 you're in that prenatal era of cgi where jurassic park and forrest gump were the standard bearers and stuff like the mask did it well but you had movies like this you had movies like congo that didn't really do CGI well. You had movies like Escape from L.A., where it literally looks like unfinished. A 3DO. It looks unfinished. It looks like a rough cut. Like it, like CGI could go horribly in 1995. And I think they're just on the cusp away from being bad in Johnny Mnemonic. It's budgeted at 25 million dollars. They definitely spent 25 million on this. Well, we saw, I mean, a couple of movies ago, I think it was Little Buddha that we were talking about. There's good CGI in the early 90s. I don't know. It's just, it, it is really hit or miss. I mean, it's. I guess it's a matter of figuring out what you can afford. And like, I guess probably the harder thing is like finding people who know what they're doing. Yeah. And I think what's kind of unique about this movie and this story is that it it's more suitable to this story. You know, like you have to go online and it takes place in the cyber world and it's more forgiving because you're dealing with it in the context of the story you know if 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 this like in lawnmower man it's basically like takes place in the suburbs and then a guy goes inside on his 
virtual reality system and it's just like the it's way out of whack visually with everything else in the movie but it blends in nicely with this and i i want to go back to that whole wave of virtual reality internet movies because i'm thinking of a couple things that do similar tactics to it like strange days actually has real footage for virtual reality because it deals with recording memory so it's all live action but the camera techniques had to be developed for a year by Catherine bigelow in order to get the steady cam right for the first person elements of it then you look at virtuosity where russell crowe is in a jail that looks like your science teacher's screensaver in fourth grade it looks awful and primitive and then russell crowe comes out and it's russell crowe so it's on that level. Like, Virtuosity does it on a more grandiose level, and it fails a little more because it's a bigger-budgeted movie, so they're pissing more money into other aspects of the film because it's very glossy and very big and very 90s. This is a little more intimate, and it's a good, fun movie. There's, I'm surprised there's no Super Nintendo or Sega Genesis game. I mean, what would it be? You would just be, like, running from left to right trying to unload data from your brain? Right, and it would be made by Acclaim Entertainment, and it would be the hardest game you've ever played in your life, and you'd want to take a hammer to the cartridge, and then Blockbuster would charge you 50 bucks for it. I want to play the level where you dive into Johnny's brain as Jones the Dolphin and go surfing around his mind. Ooh. You know what movie I was thinking of when I was watching this? I don't know if either of you have seen it. It's one of my guilty pleasures, Free Jack, with Emilio Estevez and Mick Jagger. I haven't thought of that in forever. There's some Sega CD-level graphics in that one towards the end. Was Anthony Hopkins, right? Was that Hopkins? Yes, Anthony Hopkins is trying to take Emilio Estevez's body because he's dying, and there's a lot of dystopian, dark-looking Blade Runner-esque things. It's a fun B-movie, and I unapologetically own it on DVD. And Mick Jagger makes Rolling Stones puns, and he's delightful in the film. But the thing that reminded me of Free Jack is, number one, the look of it, and number two, it's got that whole identity thing going on where it's this guy running around to save his body. He's trying to just save his physical self. You know what I mean? I'm trying to illustrate that it's not like a greater purpose. The stakes are, if he gets caught, he ceases to exist. It isn't like some broad thing. If he literally gets caught, he ceases to exist. So... Freejack's got that same sort of thing going, and it's supposed to be New York City, but they filmed it in some seedy parts of Atlanta, but not as much cyberpunk. Although, at one point, Estevez gets on a motorcycle that has what looks like a MacBook Pro on it, and Mick Jagger keeps taunting him. Oh, well, I had a, I kind of had a question to propose to you guys about the character of Johnny, whom I don't feel like we get to know too well. Just Johnny? Until the, yeah, yeah, Johnny just, okay, so they call him Mr. Smith, and he wears a black suit and a long black trench coat, Matrix. We'll get to his rant at the end, which reveals who he really is, which I've been waiting for. I wish they had doled some of that out throughout the movie, but like Mike was kind of just saying, you know, basically all we know is he needs to get the data out or he'll die, and he's kind of just very self-centered in the fact that he wants to live. You know, he doesn't want these Yakuza to chop off his head and freeze it. He's not self-centered in the sense that he's a unlikable narcissist. He's self-centered in his mission. Yeah, no, I don't mean in the sense that he's like a dick because he's kind of not. He doesn't come across that way at all. He just self-preservation no. is the issue here and I don't blame him. But I wondered, you know, does he 
choose in the end that it's better for the world to have this data and him not to keep on going? I mean, he does end up surviving the download, upload, dolphin dive towards the end there, but did you get the sense that he was okay if he died by the end? Because I kind of did in a weird way. And, and, you know, it's funny we mentioned Verhoeven because that sounds a lot like those fan theories that Quaid is lobotomized at the end of Total Recall because it fades to white. Yeah, maybe my mind was going there in a way, but I just felt like it was something maybe I was imprinting on the character, but I was like, oh, he it just feels like if there was a redemption to him that was necessary, maybe they needed him to be more of a prick, have this really vital information in his mind, and then at the end of the movie, choose to give his life for the betterment of the entire world and actually die at the end. So pull a Neo? Well, there, I don't know. I didn't, this was before then. I, maybe, again, I'm also bringing that to the party, but I just wanted to throw that out there because, you know, we don't really, like I said, we don't really get a lot about a lot of these people and their background. The most we kind of get about Johnny is he had a red tricycle on his seventh birthday. You know, those are the memories. Is the tricycle... And then it shows up at the end when it's being downloaded and it looks like claymation or whatever. Well, that's, that's because he, he was able to unload the other stuff from his brain, right? He could sort of remember his family, remember his childhood? I suppose, I suppose. But I just wish we got more meaning or reason behind that. I mean, there's not necessarily room for it here. I know it's not what they're going for. You're just supposed to sort of strap in and enjoy the ride. You wish that tricycle was Rosebud. <laughs> I mean, almost. I just wish that it wasn't so cryptic, but I forgive the film just because I'm having fun. And, you know, we're Are just talking though? about... Well, I am. I'm actually <laughs> very entertained by this movie because each sequence is something different, at least. And there's like a new situation or there's, you know, the crazy nightclub or they're going online and, you know, iced teas hanging out and all that yep. kind of thing. It varies up the set pieces. Yeah, it's very varied. I want to, I mean, the, everything you say, it's just like crazy nightclub, Matrix did it. Going online, Matrix did it. I just, I mean, obviously the Matrix didn't do it first. It's not like Simpsons did it, but it's just everything that we're seeing in this movie is we're going to just see so much better in just a couple of years. It just, it's so weird how similar these two movies are, and yet, like, they almost couldn't be more different. Well, I mean, you know, if we were trying to grasp for meaning where it could be injected into this that's kind of guess where i'm getting at that would be where i would put it i suppose and yeah i mean i think the matrix william gibson will come up again i mean it's not just based on different philosophies of life but also of like it's highly influenced by anime and you know i'm sure they watch stuff like this movie and you know read these stories and everything so yeah i mean they will do it cleaner and better but i like where they're coming from here i guess i like the roots I think it is enjoyable if, I guess, if you're not expecting anything, if you're not hoping for something deeper, there is stuff to be had here just because it's so weird. It's enjoyable in a weird way. I don't think it's enjoyable in a good way or in a way that you've never seen this stuff before. I do think that Keanu acting when he's got the VR headset on is amazing because there's, I don't, I don't understand like how they describe to him what to do. I, I like seeing people like Udo Kier show up, but I wish he had more to do. Shout out to him. Like, because, you know, he was just on My Private Idaho, so shout out to him for that. I mean, he's great in that one or two scenes he has in that movie. And here, just like, oh, he's just Udo Kier. I feel like there's bits here, and they just don't take the time to go deeper about anything. And it's just sort of a shame. The thing that's weird about Johnny Mnemonic is the supporting cast is very gimmicky. Dolph Lundgren. Henry Rollins, Ice T. Oh, they're all caricatures. It's like they're trying to sell soundtracks right at the movie theater. Well, the movie doesn't have that type of time. You know, again, it's doing, it's failing to do 
what certain films can do is that stunt cast where here bring what you know about this actor or this personality from real life <laughs> and translate it into their character because we don't have shit time to tell you who they are you know and when you're going to do that with Rollins it's like no like he's playing opposite his his public persona here like I need a different musician not really he's really just playing Henry Rollins but with nerdier credentials <laughs> but I always he's sort of portrayed as this sort of socially angry punk rocker or at least that's how I grew up knowing him and to see him be this very manic doctor was kind of like huh he's still doing that routine he's still the guy that gets painted red in the video for liar and screams laughing and is shattering the lyrics meanwhile ice t is ice t he's just wearing a ridiculous costume and it's worth noting that ice t the same year made tank girl where he was paid a few hundred thousand dollars to play a kangaroo. Well, yeah. There you go. Who is this lead girl? Because I don't think I recognize her from anything. It's like... Dina Meyer of Starship Troopers and Saw fame. Who is she in Saw? She's the detective in the first movie that gets killed. Oh. Yeah, I only knew her from Starship Troopers, and that's later. Yeah, she was in Piranha, the new one. Oh, okay. I feel like maybe this movie wasn't as big as I'm imagining it, because I guess it must not have been. But to be the female leadness, I would have I would have expected her to be in a handful of other things. Like Demolition Man, she's in there and she sort of is all of a sudden in everything, right? So, I mean, it feels like that kind of movie where this sort of puts you in a bunch of things. And, like, I haven't seen Starship Troopers, I apologize. Aside from that, like, I feel she's just not anywhere else. I just, I went through her IMDb and she's, like, she's still working today, but she's in, like, weird straight-to-video stuff. B-movies. Like, Yeah, I don't... She's it's... in B-movies, she does conventions. So she's just, she has her fan base and she's playing to that. Right, Dina Meyer has the Saw fans and the Starship Troopers crowd to cater to. But what I was going to say is, you mentioned Sandra Bullock. She was right on the brink of fame when she did Demolition Man. Lori Petty was originally cast in her role. She was right on the cusp. She had done The Vanishing with Kiefer Sutherland and Jeff Bridges. And then Speed, she got cast. It was sort of like a luck of the draw thing. But that movie was huge. And her and Keanu's profiles got bolstered enormously. What I was going to say was, I'm looking at Dina Meyer right now, the only thing she had prior to Johnny Mnemonic was, she was in a TV movie called Strapped for HBO, where she played a delivery person, and she had a guest arc on a season of Beverly Hills 90210. So this was, I guess, supposed to be a star-launching role. It got the ball kind of rolling, because after this, she went on to play a really tough chick action girl in Starship Troopers, and it seems like that's who she was going to be. I was very surprised that she kind of disappeared after the 90s. I mean, I could have seen her in the Trinity role, you know? I wonder if she auditioned for that, or down the line, you know, other roles like maybe Sif from Thor as part of the Warriors 3 gang, you know? I feel like she would fit into that crew really well. So, yeah, I think she has charisma. I like her. I didn't know her. I kind of liked that about her, that I didn't have any kind of other prior knowledge about her. She could just kind of speak for herself in this movie. Uh, Unlike Ice-T, if I could just touch back upon him, I mean, I do enjoy him in this. I knew him mainly from New Jack City growing up. But uh, great in. Yeah, he is great. That's the problem, is like, he can be great, and it just seems like he's 
doesn't care about this movie. Like his line deliveries are horrible. I mean, I don't know if that's a directorial issue, but he's just asleep here. And his role is like amazing. It's such an amazing character, like this Rastafarian ruler of the Lotex, just like this lord of the streets. Like I just really love the concept of him, and I just feel like he doesn't do it very much justice because he's he's very charismatic in some of his early stuff like new jack city like you said like uh ricochet a movie i love with denzel washington and john lithgow he's awesome in that surviving the game uh, you know surviving the game is a fun movie it's basically if tracy jordan made an action movie it's like the most dangerous game where they're hunting it's the most him dangerous and, game yeah. for the urban crowd and you've got f marie abraham rutger howard gary Busey, and john c mcginley as the guy's hunting him it's like you can't beat that lineup like holy shit uh and trespass he's really good in with bill paxton not uh, not the cage trespass (laughs) right right not to be confused not to be confused with nicholas cage's trespass walter hill's trespass with bill paxton and ice cube so it's ice cube and ice t in the same movie and they're feuding drug lords when Bill Paxton and William Sadler of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey fame shout out death, death. they death? are firefighters who find lost gold in St. Louis my god I just put that on my list instantly so he had like a nice run of stuff going in and, and then he does Johnny Mnemonic and Tank Girl in the same year in Tank Girl he plays a kangaroo and he's much better He's much better as that giant anthropomorphic kangaroo with, like, his other six kangaroo brothers. <laughs> They're going after the water. Because who doesn't like an actor like Ice-T playing a kangaroo? Well, aside from Ice-T, I do think Keanu's bringing it. I mean, even if he's not, you know, if he's not giving much character, I feel like he's there physically. Like, you mentioned Joey when he goes online and he's doing the mime yep, of, like, yep. operating no keyboard and all pulling the things that aren't there. I really like his version of that. And I just feel like he's there. And especially in the end when he goes off on his cage-esque rant at the bottom of heaven, I just thought, like, there's the energy. What the fuck is going on? What the fuck is going on? You know, all my life, I've been careful to stay in my own corner. Looking out for number one, no complications. Now suddenly, I'm responsible for the entire fucking world. And everybody and his mother is trying to kill me. If, if my head doesn't blow up first. Maybe it's not just about you anymore. Listen. You listen to me. You see that city over there? That's where I'm supposed to be. Not down here with the dogs and the garbage and the fucking last month's newspapers blowing back and forth! I've had it with them! Had it with you, I've had it with all this. I want room service. I want the club sandwich. I want the cold Mexican beer. I want a ten thousand dollar a night hooker. I want my shirts laundered. Like they do at the Imperial Hotel. 
Tokyo. One of the great Keanu Reeves monologues, and in honor of discussing that tonight, I got room service, I got a turkey club and a Negro Modelo, and I went on Backpage and got a $10,000 a night prostitute. Well, there you go. You did the full dream. Did you get your shirt tailored? I got my shirts laundered like they do at that one hotel. Oh, the la- laundered. Yes, yes, yes. I'm glad. They call that the full mnemonic. I got the full mnemonic experience. I don't want to abruptly change course, but you're talking about the mnemonic experience. I heard on a side note that you just recently had the Johnny Utah experience of sorts. Is that correct? It is correct. Indeed, I went to see Point Break Live. If you don't know Point Break Live, look it up. It started in Los Angeles. It is a stage production of Point Break where most of the movie is recreated. There's a few changes and alterations. For example, the foot chase scene and Tom Sizemore's glorious cameo are not in this version of it. But Catherine Bigelow, quote-unquote, brings a bunch of people on stage because she's been trying to find a guy to play Johnny Utah, and Keanu Reeves hasn't showed up to star in her post-Oscar remake of Point Break. So I auditioned, and you go through an audition process where you have to say, hi, I'm Johnny Utah. Then you have to do something with your body, and I did the jump down and fire my gun in the air. Cool, of course, of course. And the final one is you have to say, are you going to jump or jerk off? I didn't get it, but a buddy of mine made it to the finals. The guy they got, ironically, looked a little bit like Alex Winter, and he was great, and I was glad I didn't get chosen because of the fact that it was so fucking funny. There's a part of it where the guy playing Pappas, he's doing a dead-on Busey impression, and the entire time he's snorting cocaine to a point where there's dust on everyone's clothes. He's snorting cocaine directly from a bag, and the first act ends on him doing, Utah, give me two. Uh, I saw it in Asbury Park. They are doing it again in New York City. They might have already done it by the time this comes out, but you can Google Point Break Live and you can see where they're coming to a town near you and go check it out. I've never seen that. We talked about it on, on the episode. 2nd. Oh, no, this will be out just in the head of that. I'm not sure if tickets will still be available, but this will be out before that. So there you go. Get tickets if you can. And if you can see Point Break rescored, if that surf band goes around and does that, that's another really cool thing to see, too. Point Break has taken on this life of its own, and I mean, I'm glad. I, I'm glad that I'm glad that Point Break is this cultural touchstone as opposed to, like, Johnny Mnemonic, for instance. Well, it's funny. I went to see Point Break live with a few friends. Only one of them had never seen the movie. And my friend, her boyfriend, and I had to keep turning to her and saying this actually happens in the movie, or don't get your hopes up, this is not in the movie. You get shot with squirt guns, there's fake blood that gets sprayed, it's insane. I loved every second of it. I would go again, and I probably will be going again, and I hope you go. I cannot get over how amazing (laughs) Point Break Live is. Well, there you go, and I don't think there's any higher compliment you can pay it than that. I have a couple last tidbits that I want to get out about Johnny Mnemonic that we can sort of wrap it up with anything you guys want to say. Apparently, number one, oh, okay, so two things in the movie, that when he's going through that, like, body scanner at one point, it says it, it misdiagnoses, or sort of, I guess, the way that the chip is coded in his brain, it's that he has dyslexia, like, Johnny, just Johnny has dyslexia, which, of course, we I think we mentioned a while ago on here, but in real life, Keanu has dyslexia, so it's sort of, you know, art imitating life, I guess. Immigration control. Please insert passport. 
Beginning scan. Warning. Implant detected. Scanning dyslexia prosthesis implant. Government approved. And the other thing is that when they're in the back room of Crazy Bob's computer store, Johnny asks for iPhones. He asks for Thompson iPhones. And the subtitles on the movie, it's spelled the way that the Apple iPhone is spelled. It's I, lowercase I, then capital phone. But apparently what the the script was written, because this was like 12 years or something before the first iPhone came out, but he, what he's actually asking for are iPhones like EYE phones, which are an early head-mounted interface designed by Yaron Lanier, and that was joked about on Futurama, that they had the iPhone that was sort of a little bit different, but it was weird to see, like, he's like, hey, I need the, I need the iPhone, and it's just like, oh, okay, cool, like, all right, another, you know, another thing about art imitating life, I guess, as opposed to life imitating art. They got one thing right. Hey. They got one thing right, and it wasn't even what they were talking about. Mike Flynn, do you have any last thoughts, anything you want to make sure that you we cannot leave this giant mnemonic podcast that you're talking about? We can leave without discussing this, but I want to do point out that I vividly remember the VHS box for this movie being over video stores. And it was interesting because the, the uh, front art is on both sides of it. There's no, like, screenshots. It's not, like, that basic thing. It's just that one DVD cover that's just a close-up of his head, and, and it's got, like, that hologram that's on every 90s VHS from that era. Like, Independence Day has the holographic White House blowing up. This had that. I don't think they did that once DVD came along. And the Blu-ray is basically the poster art with a different font for the title. There was also a pinball machine for this that I never played. Really? That's interesting. That yes. makes more sense to me than a Genesis game. Because a pinball game can be about anything. And I would like to hear... I would love to play a pinball game of this where if you get it down one slot or something, it just he shouts, I want room service! I want room service! And that's just... And you have to sort of, you know, hit into other things. So that would be great. Right. I would love that. It's a, it's a shame that there aren't more movie-based pinball machines, because now I'm thinking there should have been a Bill & Ted pinball machine, there should have been a Point Break pinball machine. I'm sure that there are, maybe. There's a lot of pinball machines. There aren't of those. There wasn't a Matrix pinball machine, because pinball wasn't really big by the time Matrix came out, and they didn't even do like a comprehensive Matrix trilogy pinball machine. I want a John Wick pinball machine. You just want, I a, want, you just a, want a room full of Keanu pinball machines, is what you're saying. I would love to have a whole line of Keanu Reeves pinball machines. I think that would be wonderful. Mike Manzi, any last thoughts about Johnny Mnemonic that you would like to talk about? Well, I just, you know, basically think, yeah, I'll concede that this isn't a good movie, okay? Like, it's a mess, it's out there, you know, it's confusing, but... I like it, okay? Like, I like bad movies. So do I. Yeah, and, and I think it has its... There's merit to it, you know? Like, there are things done here. Yeah, they're going to be done better down the line in other movies, but they were here first, in a way. And even if they were done before on film, conceptually, on the page, William Gibson was there first. So I like that it has that about it, and I like the cyberpunk world, Um God, I wish just there was more power behind the camera. Like, if there was just someone a little more established. Like, I don't want to knock this director too hard because he didn't do anything before well, this was theatrically. Like his, this was his only feature film I think he ever directed. Yeah, I think it's too much for a first feature. You know, just he just 
took too he just tried to take on too much on his shoulders and it just feels like it collapsed in a lot of different places and i think that this strives and misses but at least it went for it and it's here and i like it and i'm dying to see the japanese cut because i just want to be in this cyberpunk world more like i love the matrix movies and this style isn't really done justice in hollywood very often you know i can you know can think of a thousand modern vampire hunting movies right but like how many crazy vr hacking films have we gotten not a lot not i mean people have not really been playing with this medium too much so i mean if this is all we got i'll take it for now and i I think give it a shot because keanu's good in here he upholds his action star image for now for me i think he's good in the action i think there's good action here there's some cool deaths some kind of gory oh my god the deaths are awesome in this there was nothing quite as memorable as Dolph Lundgren being fried to death by a dolphin sonic rays. You know, that's basically <laughs> what happened. So anytime a dolphin kills a dolph, I was happy. Ooh, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I don't want to say anything else because that's the end of the podcast because that is the perfect note to end on. So for all things Keanu Club, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can find the other episode that Mike joined us for. And thank you again for joining us today, Mike. And he will be back for more episodes, including John Wick, where he was on set as a crew member. So that's exciting. So come back in literally in August for that because that's going to happen eventually. But you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub to see what we've done, see what's coming next, other podcasts on the network so on and so forth. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Mike Flynn, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club.